So what is it about young people that makes us as religious folks so up in arms? Is it that they're young? Is it that we really care for them? Is it that we really want to control their lives? Or maybe it's just the fact that we just don't necessarily understand youth culture altogether. Now, let's be fair. All of us listening to this at one point were, well, young. We were a youth. We were 14, 15, filled with the glee and the glimmer of a possible bright future, right? Well, I don't know. I'm not necessarily always convinced that those years are the golden years. I mean, now with all the material and the knowledge that we have around and surrounding adolescence, knowing that adolescence really doesn't even stop until around age 27, and that's if you haven't experienced post-traumatic stress disorder or any kind of other trauma. Oh, my. And we also found out that young people's minds aren't necessarily completely developed in the way that they can necessarily make full decisions. So what is our compulsory engagement with young people? Why is it that we want to see them saved, quote-unquote, and see them lead, quote unquote, the next generation, right? I mean, how many conferences have we all been to where the pastor or the senior speaker or plenary speaker is saying how they want the youth to be the next voice of the generation? I know I was hearing that way back in the 70s when I was a youngin myself. I think it's time to explore a little bit more what it really means to be young and youthful. I get some people wanting to regenerate themselves and create little protégés running around their religious organization, but I don't really think that is where most youth and young people end up at. And having been in youth ministry myself, yo, most of them kids who said they wanted to go into quote unquote ministry ended up being and going into something else completely different. What's that all about? Man. It's time to engage this on the Profane Faith Podcast. Come on. He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important. White lives are very important, and to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hi, welcome to Profane Faith. This is your host, Dan White Hodge. I host a weekly podcast here dealing with all kind of aspects of religion and race and gender, all the aspects of intersectionality, and then try to figure out where is God in the midst of all that. And so this has been a podcast going on now for almost two years. And I thank you for tuning in and listening or downloading or streaming or wherever you might be at this moment. I wanted to just take some time and really begin to unpack a little bit 
of what it really means to be and engage with youth and adolescent culture. Um, this is uh, speaking relatively uh, of, of fields. This has been a, a field that has been relatively new over the last 50, 70 years. Um, adolescence, just a term that's been coined, uh, really didn't start popping up in literature uh, till around the 60s and 70s. And uh, we started seeing aspects of what it meant to be a teenager, right? If you want to go all the way back even to the 50s, you can begin to see there that youth culture was really defined as rebellious, uh, as those who were on the outside and outer margins of society. At the same time, there was an edge and coolness to them with their slick hair, their white T-shirts, rolled up uh, Levi Strauss jeans. Uh, this was just kind of emblematic of the uh, stereotypical 50s teenager. As you moved into the 60s, teenagers started to look a little bit different uh, with shaggier hair, uh, mustaches, without that clean look right now. We were moving into sideburns and, and aspects of really questioning what, what we were doing in, in parts of the world with a war and civil rights, right? Um, by the time you reach the 70s and 80s, popular cultures began to really take over. And so young people began to start looking, uh, look at what their pop culture icons uh, had to say about fashion and style and, and wherewithal. But within the American imagination and within the U.S. populace of understanding youth culture, the reality has always been that youth have driven markets, particularly since the late 60s. Youth have driven markets, their combined buying dollar, their combined engagement with uh, consumerism, their combined uh, overall voice in terms of what they're looking for. Young people have been at the heart of that. Conversely, uh, with that has also been an ongoing engagement with youth culture. When we think about youth ministry, those of you who have come out of some of those areas, just like myself, uh, realize real quickly that it, youth ministry is a culture into and of itself within church and religious settings um, of all denominations, right? When you think about camp or when you think about para-youth organizations like Young Life um, or Youth for Christ, these aspects and these engagements with society and with young people really begin to look at what the outreach to young people look like. And so we begin to take a different uh, look uh, within, within those organizations. We begin to take a different look at how to, quote unquote, reach young people. We think about the founder of Young Life, Jim Rayburn. Uh, one of his quotes, famous quotes was, it is a sin to bore, the kid, bore a kid with the gospel. So this began to set up a particular mantra that said we have to begin to entertain. We have to earn the right to be heard with the advent of, of uh, when you think about mega churches and, and, and how they have come about, particularly over the last 45 years. Uh, we began to see how churches begin to actually have staff and a particular role was that of the youth pastor. Uh, and that, of course, that title and role has changed over the years. But again, that is a more of a modern invention. So I wanted to take some time and really look at this. Uh, I have worked in and among youth for the last 25 years, really or just a little over 25 years. And my research area in the field of communication really begins to look at popular culture and young people and their impact on popular culture using the vehicle of hip hop um, for that. And I really wanted to begin to ask the question, what do, what do 
youth really think of a God today? How do we view religion? Are youth really losing their religion? Are they really, really walking away from the faith? We have this panic from the evangelical side that says young people are lost. They're dangerous. Of course, that that type of mantra and that type of rhetoric goes all the way back to the 50s. Uh, when you start thinking about the culture wars and when you start thinking about what it meant to be a Christian in the 60s, especially if you had long hair uh, and a beatnik beard, right? Uh, those things all mattered and those things were all something that were regarded as against culture. At the same time, again, it's representing something that is a attractive b something that is elusive something that uh c you can't have and so d you want it and so youth culture has continued to be a very popular uh environment but over the years how we look at youth has really changed particularly as it pertains to this generation those born after the year 2000 now that particular group of young people has been under the religious scrutiny eye for quite some time. But to even go before that, you can even begin to ask yourself, what about the millennials? Now, if we're talking about true millennials and those who are quote unquote millennials that graduated in the year 2000, that would be somebody who was born right around 81, 82 uh, or around 1980. Now, if you think about the time and the period, and if you were using a, a framework that says your social, cultural, religious, educational, political, uh, of course, media environment, all those things shape who you are, then you have to ask yourself, well, what was going on during the 80s and 90s? And why is this group such a large group of individuals? Um, so I wanted to just ask a question and what that and what that looked like, particularly as it pertains to the engagement of religious dogmatic beliefs upon young people. Now, as you know, this is a podcast. This is not an academic environment. I'm not here to present data per se. I will be presenting data, but not necessarily the data that you would think as is an exhaustive realm. Uh, that'll come later in a book. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but right now, I just wanted to kind of spend some time really exploring what's going on right now with young people. What is happening? And uh, what are some of the areas that uh, they are engaging in? that are raising concerns and eyebrows. Check this out. Um, what's the millennial question? Apparently millennials as a generation, which is a group of people who were born approximately uh, 1984 and after, um, uh, are tough to manage. And they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic, and self-interested, unfocused, lazy, but entitled is the big one. And, uh, and because they confound leadership so much, what's happening is leaders are asking the millennials, what do you want? And millennials are saying, we want to work in a place with purpose, love that. Um, we want to make an impact, you know, whatever that means. Um, uh, we want free food and bean bags. Uh, and so somebody articulates some sort of purpose, there's lots of free food and there's bean bags, and yet, for some reason, they are still not happy, and that's because um, you, the, they're missing. There's, there's, a, there's a missing piece. Um, what I've learned is that there. I can break it down into four pieces. Right? There are four four things, four characteristics. One is parenting. The other one is uh, technology. The third is impatience, and the fourth is environment. The generation that we call the millennials 
too many of them grew up um, subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies, you know, where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it, right? They were told, um, uh, some of them got into um, honors classes not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Some kids got participation medals. They got a medal for coming in last, right? Which the science we know is pretty clear, which is it devalues the medal and the reward for those who actually work hard. And it actually makes the person who comes in last feel embarrassed because they know they didn't deserve it, so it actually makes them feel worse, right? So you take this group of people, and they graduate school, and they get a job, and they're thrust into, an, into the real world, and in an instant, they find out they're not special, their moms can't get them a promotion, um, that you get nothing for coming in last, and by the way, you can't just have it because you want it, right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered. And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem, to compound it, is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed, right? And so everybody sounds tough, and everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness, and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you got to do. And they have no clue, right? <laughs> So you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own, right? They were dealt a bad hand, right? Now, let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good, right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I, what, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive, right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe, right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of 
adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains, and for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress, that's pretty much the primary reasons why. environments yeah i used to like go to chapel all the time when i was in high school okay i would go with olivia and mm -hmm. then we would just yeah and then as i got older and older it was just like more and more toxic like it was just felt like more and more like i guess that's a bad way to say that i don't want to sound like i'm really dissing this place but no you're not dissing just it just yeah it just felt like it just felt like there was more and more like affirmation of like i would say specifically like white Christian, like people who had grown up like white Christian, mm -hmm. like evangelical, like there was just a lot of affirmation there, and like a lot of like, oh, let, let's like let's hold a vigil for Mike Brown, but then like do nothing past that, you mm -hmm. know? And it was just like a feel good, like, like oh yeah, I went to that vigil, like oh my god, that's incredible, like you're an incredible person for right. going there, you know? Right, just right. like, and yeah, I just felt like like the. Like, I saw more and more of that as I was getting more aware and being like, well, I don't want to be a part of something that, like, makes me feel good. And then, but actually makes me feel horrible because I can, I'm like, well, this is not doing anything. This is, yeah. like, really not helping anybody. And just seeing that, like, the church that I was around, like, wasn't, wasn't pushing people to work, to look past that and, like, pushing people to be like, okay, mm -hmm. you know what? You have been steeped in a racist environment, like, and it doesn't help anybody for you to be like... Oh, I'm not racist. Like I love black people, or I love Latinos. <laughs> right, you know, right, like, right. Like I like that doesn't help anybody. Um, like I, I feel like on a daily basis, like I try to be like, like I'm I'm never gonna be like I'm not racist because like we are all racist. Like inherently, <laughs> I feel like you know it's like yeah, yeah. it's like part of our our culture and part of our system. Like we're all sexist. Like I catch myself all the time being like okay why did I just have that thought about that woman over there like and like make all these assumptions about her based on her clothes or something it's like look what I'm wearing like people probably make a bunch of assumptions about what I'm wearing or something you know and it's like and it's like by being continually aware of like what my like like thoughts that go right into your head when you see somebody like mm -hmm. by, by just like looking those straight in the face and be like well why is that there like it's because we've been told that our entire lives like and then like how do I become more and more like aware of like getting rid of those thoughts and be, like by being aware of them you can get a sense of like what other people are thinking you know because yeah. and then you can like work harder to negate those things but yeah how did i get here i don't know um <laughs> no this is good this is good see that's what i'm talking about see y'all oh my well very interesting indeed hmm well, youth ministry in general, when that topic and that name comes to mind, it evokes several different connotations. One, race. Uh, youth ministry has tended to be very white uh, from a socioeconomic perspective. Uh, number two, uh, you think of wealthy. When you think of the quote-unquote American teenager, you don't think of somebody living on the south side of Chicago. You don't think of somebody in South Central. You don't think of somebody in West Philadelphia. You think of somebody who is rich, who is living in the suburbs, and has maybe grown up in and around somebody who's connected to John Hughes films in the 80s, right? I know youth pastors, you know, who loved The Breakfast Club back in the 80s, right? And while that's an amusing film and, you know, there's some funny parts to it, that was not representative of my uh, teenage experience as a Gen Xer. Uh, and when you think about 
engagement with youth ministry, the resources that are out there, they are largely and predominantly white and engulfed in white supremacist notions of what it means to be young, what it means to be a youth, what it means to be somebody uh, surrounded, right, by quote unquote adults. Most of the times we're obviously talking about cis heteronormative parents, a nuclear family, a mother and a father. We're not talking about trans or gay or or anything else outside of that normative experience of, again, a nuclear family. So youth ministry has gone through a lot of different changes over the years. When you think about organizations like Youth Specialties or Urban Youth Workers, to just to name a couple, or Urban Youth Workers Institute, those two organizations have really kind of branched off really from each other. First, you had Youth Specialties, and that was really an organization that, uh, you know, was one of the first to really engage youth ministry and to engage the youth pastor. Uh, from that, you know, came the field, quote unquote, of youth ministry with the Amer- the Association of Youth Ministry Educators, A-Y-M-E. And uh, but then, you, of course, you run into problems in the 90s when people start saying, wait a minute, these resources don't reflect black and brown young people experiences. And now we don't necessarily understand and know how to engage with that. So then you have the Urban Youth Workers Institute. Now, I was a part of that organization in all fairness. I was also a part of Youth Specialties, although I was always their bastard child uh, on on the outskirts talking about hip-hop and black stuff. But with Urban Youth Workers Institute, it's a little bit more personal. I was involved with the starting and the beginning of that back in 97. I was engaged with the the elements of what that organization uh, was and and, and really, to, to certain extents, what it is today. So... That one was a little bit more near and dear, and which meant it was a little bit more difficult to kind of walk away from that when I felt that the organization was just a little bit too conservative for me and just too much uh, touting the white evangelical dollar. Um, And so when you start to think about, again, how youth are engaged, we tend to use methods from white evangelical perspectives. Now, if it's just me, it's just me. But I don't think it's just me. I find that problematic on many different levels. And I find that a nuisance when it begins to ask the question of the LGBTQ plus community, when it begins to ask the question of what does it mean to be black and Latinx and Asian and all other ethnicities that are young in this generation and age. Yeah, some things come up lacking. So we've got some issues to deal with as it pertains to race and young people. So check this little video out as it pertains to young people's perspectives. The title is The Greatest Issues Facing Young People. Now, this has got some great points in it. However, most of the people being interviewed, and because this is a medium where you don't see the folks on there, uh, most of the people being interviewed are white um, and male and, uh, you know, are talking about, you know, the issues that are facing them. Now, that's fine and dandy, as it pertains to those issues. Everybody has a right to say what is affecting them and and, and what what problems they have. The problem comes when we grandiose those and then turn those into a standardized way of viewing young people. In other words, what the experience of dominant culture is then becomes the experience of everyone else's. That's where the problem comes in. Because we all know Two youth aren't even the same, even growing up in the same household. So check this video out and we'll be back. 
Um, well, coming from a North American perspective, I would say the obesity problem would be a rather large problem these days. I guess it's our like reliance on technology. Like we need like our cell phones with us all the time. We need Facebook. We just depend on it to like survive and yeah. get through our day. It's always in our pocket and like in class and we get distracted so easily because we have technology now. Didn't used to have that, so. I, th I feel like it's apathy. Okay. Like I feel like um, people need to become more involved. Um, I feel like people need to become passionate about something or else, uh, I don't know, we're screwed. I think the greatest issue facing our generation is uh, tolerance of other religions and I think the biggest issue would be peace internationally, especially in the Middle East and North Korea. And I think the biggest issue facing our generation is how we're going to deal with our global warming issues. Just the technological advance, like everything is just so easy to get at, for example, like online shopping, Facebook, just those kind of stuff. Just it's one of those difficulties because it just like we aren't as outgoing as, as before anymore. So I guess that's one of, one of our problems. I believe it is the obsession with technology. I feel one of the greatest issues would have to be um, part of the technological advances we have such as the internet with social networking sites such as Facebook and even our email. Um, I think it causes us to pick and choose the times that we actually want to contact people and answer questions or respond to certain issues. Um, and I think there's some sort of anti-socialness about it as well. So it's kind of um, a place to rant and get your feelings out, but I don't think any action can come of it. And I don't think that's the appropriate way to kind of go about solving problems if that's what you want to do. I guess you could say like how people are so influenced by the media and like images that girls and I guess more girls are faced with every day. Just seeing like pictures of really skinny or really like artificial looks and then you basically try like the things that you can never like that aren't realistic for girls our age or whatever. I think the lack of sympathy for third world countries from people like teenagers like us we really don't care. Oh. Us as a generation, we really don't have enough sympathy for other places that don't have what we have, and we're just kind of self-centered on ourselves and our money and our things and stuff. And it's not going to help the world be a better place if we keep focusing on stuff like that. Maybe uh, speeding on traffic and traffic and stuff like that is pretty dangerous, and uh, people continue to do it even though people are losing their lives every year. So I believe it's the technology we use. Uh, it oversimplifies a lot of issues that would normally be uh, a longer debate in our in our previous years but now each generation gets uh, a little more into things they shouldn't be getting into and it just kind of takes away some of the negative consequences of uh, our actions. That We don't know how to be independent like I rely on my cell phone all the time and it's with me 24-7 and if it broke or I died or anything I'm dead without it like I need it I can't be alone like at all. Uh, well, I would definitely say that the greatest issue is probably the environment. There's so many different things that are going on with uh, corporate so, uh, social responsibility and sustainability uh, that it's really the corporations and the government, um, along with the just every individual that has to take the stand and uh, really make a difference with the environment. I think the uh, greatest issue facing our generation today is um, not being an individual and more like following a trend. Um, you know, you see a lot of people, you know, doing what everyone else does, and I think it's just better just to be yourself, and, you know, you live once, so, you know, have fun with it. Technology. Okay.
I'd say technology as well because people are focusing more on cell phones and Facebook than homework. Uh, I think uh, the greatest issue would be something to do with uh, our uh, environment. Um, we really do have a problem with uh, pollution and uh, deregulated, deregulated policies uh, both in Canada and the United States and uh, that's something that just needs to be dealt with eventually. For students and just kids in general coming out of school thinking actually what they want to do with their life and actually thinking for themselves and not being brainwashed by all the social media stuff, I think that, uh, that has a really powerful effect on some people and they really need to clear their heads and be able to think for themselves. I believe the greatest issue facing us today is technology constantly changing. It's something that we just like we almost can't keep up with. It's just it's something that we have to all deal with as a group or else it'll never uh, be like we'll never get our heads around it really. journey maybe we'll start there what has been your own spiritual for, yeah for me it was really hard at first <laughs> um, because I'm uh, I've been raised Catholic okay all right but as I think around the age of 13 my um, my mom is really Catholic my dad not so much um, <laughs> I was really Catholic all right yeah yes. exactly so we had this discussion where like I was the one choosing Okay. Like around like 13 or 14, if I wanted to follow, still go to church, mm -hmm. go to those class that we're taking. Uh, and I said no, because I didn't thought that um, religious was part of me. Okay, yeah. Uh, so coming to North Park was a little bit hard because I felt like a kid, uh, kid again and where the choice wasn't mine mm. anymore. Interesting. Because... Um, uh, a lot of teachers are all um, bringing spirituality and Christianism uh, into their class. Yes. And so I had to learn the, all this again and I had to kind of deal about with sp spirituality mm -hmm. in my class. Okay. In my class. Okay. Um, that's why it was a little bit hard. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Were there is was there any anyone at any point ever like try to like save you or hand you literature or anything like that? Anything crazy like that? Uh, no, it's not like that. It's like some books, uh, a lot of books that teachers are giving us are mm -hmm. talking a lot about spirituality and okay. uh, they try to. Um, uh, relate spirituality with their uh, the course that they taught. Okay. Um, and um, I felt like it's not what I signed for. I signed for a university. I signed for a diploma, bus yes. business and communication. Yes. And I didn't sign for a class about spirituality. Yes. Okay. Um, I also felt that I wasn't really fair for other people that wasn't religious or people who had another religion mm -hmm. uh, like Muslim or Hindu like we have Muslim here yeah. and like yeah. I mean they're not agree with that like they have a different thought about religion mm -hmm. that is not the same and um, I just think that if we want to be all equal it would be better to um, um, maybe leave a little bit the Christian Christianity part uh, a little bit um, I don't know how to say that. A, like a pose mm -hmm. of it, mm -hmm. like making the student 
uh, and it needs to be a choice for the students. I got you. I got you. How were you then? So if your mom was really Catholic, dad mm-hmm. wasn't. So how how were you raised? How what did what did religion then look like for you growing up as a kid? Did you have to go to mass? Did you have to partake in like communion? And- uh, yeah, I had like class. Uh, it was like after school. It's like it's not part of the school, so it's okay. something that we do um, as an activity after school. Okay. Nothing to do with school because in France, um, public school don't deal with uh, religion at all. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so public school has to be atheist, which means that there is no religion. Got it. So uh, my mom forced me, not really forced me, I was little, so like I had to listen, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but yeah, my mom wanted to go to those class after school, um, which I enjoyed because okay. I think it was a good learning and I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, even me i'm thinking about like if one day i have kids i would love to like uh make them going uh there to those class hmm. because i think it's important to maybe not be born with religion but to yeah. um give an opportunity to our kids okay even though they can choose after to not believe or to believe but it's important to give the education of it i think hmm. interesting yeah, it, i think it opened their mind okay At this point, you may be wondering, wow, is this, uh, what's Diane Hodge up to right now? Well, this is a prelude to an even bigger episode that I'll be doing in regards to young people and the kids are all right, quote unquote, is the working title I'm hoping to put together for the final uh, episode of this season's uh, podcast series. Uh, And in And the importance of that is because I want to explore and continue exploring the the really the missing link within millennial and Gen Y. And now as it's being termed Gen Z studies uh, is the black Latinx and particularly Asian, poor Asian uh, voice uh, in that dialogue. And so I wanted to end this season with that. And so this is kind of a prelude to that episode to kind of give us a little bit of a primer, if you will. But I also wanted to present a little bit of some research that I have done uh, in an upcoming book that I'm hoping that will hopefully be out within the next year, year and a half. Now, uh, I have been in the works of research uh, for about the last two years, running some focus groups with those who work with young people to help develop a questionnaire and a a measurement stick, if you will. Uh, If you're in the academy, you know that developing the right tools so that you can understand things is extremely important. And it's important, particularly when you are trying to set up something that has really not been done well. Uh, You want to make sure the right, the tools in the tool shed are sharp and are able to bring you back the material that you need. And so uh, my partners and I have helped design a questionnaire and just questions to ask in interviews and in surveys, quantitative and qualitative, uh, that will be reflective and that will bring us back the most bang for our buck. So we're doing pre-research with that. And along the way, of course, always trying to find funding, which is always a, a, uh, a part of the research process as well. And that has its own biases and racism, but that is for another episode. Now, that being said, this is a work that I've been pulling together. Now, I've been in doing this research since about 2009, 2010, uh, officially 
Of course, I spent my doctoral program looking at some young people, but I really wanted to begin to understand those born, and particularly after 82, what did they grow up in? So I have right now about 350 interviews, qualitative, uh, semi-structured interviews. I have about 50 active interviews, and I have some a collection of just quantitative data that I have that's been put together. And I've used this research uh, over the last couple of uh, books that I've put out and articles that I've put out over the last few years, and particularly my latest work, Homeland Insecurity, which came out last July. You can check that out. The link will be in the show notes. Talks a little bit about this generation, their voice, and particularly as it pertains to white missionaries coming to their environment and to multi-ethnic environments. So you should check that out. There's some interesting stuff uh, in there. So when we talk about black millennials, when we talk about uh, just millennials that are not white, that are not uh, affluent, that don't fall into the evangelical category, we're really talking about a very diverse group of people. We're talking about folks who have endured a lot and have seen a lot of change in a little bit of time. See, uh, I was just having this conversation with my daughter um, the other day and telling her how there's been such rapid change just in my lifetime. Um, And not that change has stopped or became stagnant and whatnot in other times. But with the rise of technology, with the rise of the microchip, our society has transformed itself from quite a rural agrarian society, one that lived off the land, one that lived, quote unquote, in civilization, yet was still dependent upon uh, the actual physical labor of people to go and to produce. And most of the time that was your own physical labor on your land or in your clan or tribe to produce life and to work through those things. But with the advent of the 20th century, we move into a different category where we begin to depend on machinery and we begin to depend on the computer chip and begin to depend on our modern technology to help us get by to the point now in 2019, we are completely dependent on electricity, say, for example. We are completely dependent on our electronics and our devices, our devices that keep us going, that wake us up in the morning, that set reminders that contain all of our data uh, that puts puts us at an interesting and vulnerable position in our time. But again, as I always say, that is for another episode. When we begin to think about young people, they've endured some major shifts uh, that I like to talk about. And for the sake of time and for the sake of just having to do an exhaustive breakdown of adolescent culture, I wanted to start with World War II. World War II is in the... United States imagination, a monumental time. It really is a time that the U.S. saw itself as someone who was a hero, as someone who is a a helper, a savior, somebody who can come in and really um, establish itself. And really, the United States established itself as a world power um, after that, dropping a nuclear bomb uh, on uh, two nukes uh, in, in Japan, the only two thus far that have been uh, detonated during wartime. And that established the U.S. as a stronghold here in the United States. And so we continually go back to World War II as an imaginative and uh, mythic time. We tend to remember it uh, as collectively as a time that was great, uh, pure, 
uh, family oriented, uh, a time then really where there was very little um, mistakes that the U.S. could do collectively as a society uh, every year, whether it's on the big screen or whether it's on Netflix or Hulu or one of these streaming um services we always have a film or some kind of television series uh, on world war ii every year uh, we continually go back to that time i mean even the marvel universe is built in, in and around world war ii uh, and what that looked like and so world war ii was big it was the shifting of lower powers to the united states it was the last just war as well um it was the last war that was actually a war we have not had a war since by technical measures that was the last time that congress approved a war everything since then has been a skirmish or an operation or some kind of a mission or some kind of uh um you know retaliation but it has not technically been a war outright as it was in world war ii um operations and missions and skirmishes like i said took place after that um but the u.s became a global police it was from that point that we established bases in just about every country um which is very interesting um the u.s uh was beginning to create itself as a pop culture icon uh particularly with its shipment out of popular american popular culture television was just beginning to gain steam although the radio had already picked up uh in terms of popularity and people were beginning to amass around this new media device the radio radio was powerful my grandmother born in 1918 grew up around the radio and listening uh to little orphan annie on the radio uh so see podcasting and listening to audio is not that new <laughs> so to speak and so previous generations did so just in a different manner they didn't have the opportunity to stream or to have it on demand they had to listen at a particular time at a particular moment uh, and the people on the other end putting together the show uh, used all the eclectic and uh, very unique ways of ga garnishing their audience's attention um, it was in a very eclectic and very creative time uh, in the realm because people couldn't see uh, until television televisions really took place into the 1960s and that's where we have our next societal shift in the 1960s which most cultural theorists and most uh, uh folks who study pop cultures suggest there was a major shift during this decade 1960 to 1969 uh it's what most call the postmodern or the post-soul if you will transference OK, if you think about the soul era, the soul era um, really operated on those born uh, within the church environment, within the space and place that recognized, particularly black and brown communities that recognized the church as an authoritative figure that recognized pretty much a linear way of understanding the world. Uh, it recognized uh, singularized leadership. Uh, this was the soul generation, but the post-soul generation, particularly those born after 1969 and into the 70s, grew up without that. They grew up without the leaders that they could call to and 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 rely upon, like a Malcolm X or a a, a Martin Luther King, and so. These this generation born in the 70s grew up in a different era. We'll get to that in a second, but 1960s 
mark the beginning of the first questioning of the U.S. as a global police. Uh, and it was, as many historians have recounted, the last battle of the Civil War, particularly for African-Americans. Um, and uh, it was a time of revolt. It was a time where people began to see uh, in full-fledged what war really is through the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was the first um, was the first televised, transmediated war. People, again, saw what it, things were really happening on the battlefield. Uh, normality was questioned. Uh, equality and equity was were realized for a lot of different people. At the same time, you have black and brown communities, and particularly African-American communities, at the height of... Okay, of their middle classdom, the African American as as Americans as a whole, okay, have not seen this level of a median household income, which was around twenty thousand dollars, which at that time in 1968, 1969 uh, was actually pretty good. You got to remember, my grandmother bought her house uh, for about four thousand dollars and mortgaged that thing off in 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 about fifteen years. Okay, so when you think about the average cost of milk, we were still talking about I can give you a dollar and change and you're going to come back with change. Okay, this was a different era. So when you think about twenty, twenty five thousand dollars a year uh, as as a as a middle class, upper middle class income, that's a lot of money. This was the last time this happened. By the time the 1970s happened, most of the civil rights leaders were either killed, sent off uh, into exile, uh, put into prison, um, or just uh, uh, shunned themselves so much that they couldn't see, find uh, the light of day in, in the public sphere again. So the 1960s saw a major, major shift uh, just societally, and it's really placed us where we're at. The next came the rise of the post-industrial society um, in the late in this in the seventies and into the late seventies, and this was a major time. This was this was this now started to see the nightly news. We started to see world events transpire on the stage. When you think about Iran, you think about Saudi Arabia. When you think about just the continent of Africa, when you start to think about how we view the prince and the princess. These were all starting to take place during that time. We also had a gas shortage during that time, or oil shortage during that time. Uh, so young people growing up in this time were just coming into their realm of understanding television, media, popular culture. Now, there's still a connection to linear modality. There's still a connection to singularized leadership. And in fact, when it comes to singularized leadership, we really haven't left much of that even to this day. But I'll take that up at another time. But I just kind of wanted to leave you all with that. With 1970s, of course, gave birth to the 1980s, which I would say was really the 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 high era, uh, the golden era, if you will, for the U.S. Um, it was a time when pop culture was at its highest, was at its highest peak in terms of just uh, newness, and its 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 own relic uh, was was renewing itself constantly. You got to remember, MTV goes online in 1981. Uh, this is the first time we start seeing that HBO, which actually started in the 70s, was the, one of the first cable television uh, channels that was on 24 hours a day. You got to remember, prior to this, um, 
Channels used to sign off at midnight. Now, I know for those of you who are under the age of 30, probably don't remember that. Uh, but there was a time when channels signed off at midnight and they would go off their uh, their station. It would just turn to snow. There would be no signal. And then they would resume broadcasting at 5 a.m. HBO was one of the first cable broadcast systems that said, we're not signing off. We're going to run television 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And of course, now that has become the normality. Even if your station signs off, it gives that time, that airspace to somebody else so that you can make an income, that you can make money. That took place during the 1980s. This was also the height of capitalism as well. Everybody wanted to get rich. You can watch the Time series put out on the 80s. And one of the things they highlight the most is just everybody wanted to spend money. Everybody wanted to be big and famous. And so uh, this was also one of the rises of what's called the McDonaldization uh, theory. This is put out by George Ritzer uh, that talked about efficiency, calculability, predictability, control through non-human technology really took place. When you think about how McDonald's created their consumer business that's really been implicated in large swatches of our community in all areas of of manufacturing of consumerism of business um, when you think about efficiency that is a major major thing and this is what a lot, a lot of millennials grew up with efficiency calculability predictability and control we also started to see some of the first ATMs, automatic teller machines, were, again, this is what some sociologists and social psychologists called the nothing. This was you are talking to an automated service. We started to see the end of calling 800 numbers or, 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 or service numbers where you were actually talking to a human first. Now we're, of course, you call any 800 number or you call it for any help, you're going to be push, pushing a whole bunch of buttons rather than talking to somebody. They're going to do all they can so that you so that you don't talk with somebody and that if the technology, OK, can uh, fix whatever it is that you have, all the more better for that. This this began in the 1980s. We also saw the rise of consumerism. We also saw the, saw the rise of family debt. You got you go from 1971 to 1989 and you go from having about maybe eight hundred dollars in family cumulative family debt. By the time 1989 hits, we're looking at 50 and 60 thousand dollars worth of debt. That debt has continued to grow. In fact, in the 1980s with during the Reagan era, we saw the growth and expansion, OK, of the really with the dollar being, you know, with us being taken off of the Myers-Briggs standard and, and gold and whatnot, we have seen that the dollar because, you know, the dollar gets printed faster than they can, uh, you know, than you can spend it. So we started to see how our economy is now built off of consumerism. For us to survive, you have to go and buy. Right. Uh, and so now you have a generation growing up and seeing that. OK. McDonaldization, keep that in mind, efficiency, calculability, uh, uh, predictability and control, particularly through non-human technology. Um, Ritzer has called this the globalization of nothing, non-places, non-things, non-people, non-service. It's the dehumanization, it's the disenchantment, right, of the grand meta-narrative. That's something to think on right there, but that's also something that affects us as we begin to understand uh, consumerism, particularly the, in, in, during the 1980s. When you start thinking about the 1990s, we have to think about 1991. 1991 was one of the first American religious identification surveys that identified a group that we now define as the nuns. 
not nuns, N-U-N-S, but the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They have no religious affiliation. They are not connected to any denomination. From that point forward, now we begin to see a little bit more of an obsession particularly with evangelical uh, environments, uh, evangelical youth ministries in their obsession with young people. We need to go out and reach them. They are, they are non-religious. They are not affiliated with any religion. And so this began during the 1990s. I call this the rise of the critical inquiry and the information age. When you start thinking about personal computers being sold in homes, laptops being made uh, available. When you think about Netscape Navigator, Yahoo and Google, these all came around during the 1990s. The 1990s saw the rise of the Silicon Valley. And now we begin to have certain spaces that are called my space during the late 90s. And we begin to see the beginnings of what will become the social media culture that we now know today. OK, so by the time you reach the end of the 90s, you have a culture built up around consumerism around the notion that anybody can be popular, around the notion that celebrityism is something to be worshipped, around the notion that religion really revolves around money, okay? We have the rise and fall of televangelists. But then the new millennia, a new decade, a new century begins in the year 2000, and not even that far into it, September 11th happens in 2001, an entire society is shifted and we enter the culture of terrorism. From that point, life has been turned upside down. And you have to remember those born after 2001 have grown up in that culture. They know no difference. They know no difference of going to the airport and having to take everything off. They know no difference of, of what the world would be like without Al Qaeda. Most don't even have an understanding of the history of Al-Qaeda and where they came from and how the U.S. was involved with Al-Qaeda back in the 70s and 80s. Okay, 9-11 and the cultural terrorism took place. Of course, we have the election of the first black president during that era. And of course, we have the 2016 election, which gives rise to white nationalism, white fear and a white Christian state, which is where we're at right now. These have been the major eras, y'all. These have been uh, the shifting of religious beliefs, which like I said, began, if you really want to pinpoint it, it started really, you could really begin to see the numbers track it in 1991. But, you know, to take this even further, you can see it happening throughout um, the last better half of the 20th century. You, uh, of course, Europe was the first wave. Uh, those who questioned faith um, and, but, and some would argue that they finally have the space to do so. Uh, Karl Marx and people like him would say that religion has been used as a control mechanism. This generation and this newer generations with some of the first to begin to question that control and say, wait a minute, we don't need a theologian. We don't need a pastor to tell us that God is there. We can do this on our own. And folks like Tupac Shakur led revolts like that within sociotheological spheres within sociopolitical spheres and questioning the very moral fiber and fabric of which many African-Americans and Latinx communities had built faith and hope on folks like Tupac questioned that. 
So these are some major societal shifts that have helped influence young people. Now, there's some other major events that I want to point out that I think it's important to talk about that also affect youth culture as well. Of course, we already talked about 9-11. All right. We have social media. Facebook, uh, February of 2004 begins uh, its its run. OK, most people didn't even know what it was. But guess what? Those who were in their teens did. All right. Obama elected as as president in 2008. Now, if you want to talk about black millennials, okay, this is what they're experiencing. These are major events in their life. Gina Six in 2006, if you remember that, look that up. Black Twitter begins around 2007 to 2008, is right around roughly, arguably, the, the start of that, which is a major, major also communication vehicle for black millennials. Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was also a major event, particularly for black and brown millennials as well. People were able to see again through media exactly how bad things really were and how how bad they really have been. Not that they needed any more proof, but this generation grew up with that. You also have to keep in mind things that also um, affected this and also impacted these things. Well, also the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Now we're going back. But that also helped create the culture of terrorism, although it wasn't called necessarily that. But that helped begin this culture of terrorism, the sleeper cell. Right. Ebonics recognized in Oakland as a black language in 1996. That's powerful, especially if you are in grade school on the West Coast at that time. You have the rise of the Internet between 1993 and 1998. I've just talked about that, particularly, you know, the, the growth and development. If we go from dial up all the way to now having our own cable modems. And, and, and now they're talking about gig speeds and whatnot in the house. Another area of that was also the O.J. Simpson trial, 1994 to 1995. That was major. These were, this was something that um, particularly a lot of millennials couldn't necessarily wrap their head around. But for those of us who were around at that time, I was in my 20s, we were glued to the television sets because there was no social media at that time. So we were glued to the television sets. I was glued to, to Inquirer, People Magazine, anywhere I can get my hands on of information of what's going on in that trial. Then, of course, you had Tupac's death in 1996, Biggie Smalls' death in 1997. Okay, Dr. Bernard Harris walks in space, the first African-American to go out in space and walk around a little bit. 1995. These were all supporting events to these major events that I just listed. Okay, There were also some things that really begin to ignite this ongoing and now this newly formed critique that particularly black and brown millennials have and particularly black and brown Gen Yers have in AACP marks the death of the word nigga on July 9th, 2007. That's been an ongoing debate, correct? And it's really that word is tied to older black folks, some young, don't get me wrong, but it's the genesis of that comes from the civil rights and the soul generation, Okay. Troy Davis, 2011, marks the beginning of the black male being thwarted through social media, being thwarted through the CNN, Fox News, media channels. This was the first uh, this was one of the first times that we begin to really just see how deep the rabbit hole goes with racism, because this was all leading up to Trayvon Martin in 2012. And this 
A lot of people, and in fact, if you listen to the show, a lot of people can go back to Trayvon Martin and say that was a singularized event that got me into activism. That was an event that woke me up. Trayvon Martin was huge, continues to be huge. So was Mike Brown. But remember, Mike Brown came after Trayvon. And Mike Brown really signified the beginning of Black Lives Matter, which began as a a hashtag as well. These were all events, y'all, that affect the socioeconomic, the sociotheological, the socioeducational, the sociopolitical. All of these environments were all affected by these major events. And it reshapes the worldview and how young people understand the worldview. And particularly for those of us who think about um, religion and how how young people understand religion, this is a major impact. This is the first time you can have an entire commentary set right on your phone. Prior to that, you'd have to have a, a, a 900 square foot room just to hold all the books, the encyclopedias, the material. Then you got to remember where all that stuff is at. Now it can be recalled within seconds. Okay. People are now, but now the questioning doesn't just stop at, 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 at who God is. It's like, well, who wrote the commentary? Who put that out? See, so we got, we got some things that we have to contend with before we even get to the question of faith and are these children being lost? We have to begin to contend with and wrestle with some of these major events. A few things to keep in mind with what I'm now defining as the post-civil rights generation, particularly those born uh, in the 90s and moving forward, this post-civil rights generation. This was a generation raised in the ruins of the Reagan crack cocaine era, okay? This was a generation raised in the womb of media culture. Technology is central in normativity, okay? And I think for some of us, we have to realize just how permeable and accessible technology is to this generation, especially those born in the 2000s. It is as if it is an appendage to their body. And for those of us who say, oh, man, this generation has lost their way and their will to engage and communicate. Well, let's think about this. Let's think about this objectively. In if I'm getting my dates correct, it was 1910 or 1909. There was an ad that came out, I believe in the New York times that said this generation has lost its way. And because they, and, and they, and they were going off why they've lost their way. They've lost their way because, and they cannot learn how to communicate because things like the newspaper are always in front of their faces. Okay. You can't even get on a train anymore and have a conversation with with somebody because they have a paper in front of them. People are consumed by this news. Okay, so and when you start to think about, you know, different theorists who have come out and said, uh, you know, the negativity about pop culture and we can get into all those good things and and whatnot. But my point being is, I think we have to begin to look at all sides of the coin. Yes, there is an effect of this type of technology on the mind, on how we operate. Um, But simply saying, let's get rid of it. It's satanic and let's just replace it with the good old days. That's not going to happen. Okay. This was a generation raised in the ambiguity of morals, ethics, and social values. Okay. They've grown up with adults telling them, all right, do as I say, not as I do. 
And that's something, the big, strong critique of this generation. They're like, look, the adults ain't even doing right. So let me go figure this thing out on my own. This is a generation raised during the one of the greatest shifts in the Christian faith. We're at a major apex here in 2019. Which way are we going to understand? I truly believe evangelicalism is on its last leg. And if you ask me personally, I think it needs to just die. And we need to figure something else out. But culture is hard to, to, to put away, and particularly when it's uh, run by the dominant uh, culture. Uh, so it's not going to go out easy and it's not going to go out quietly. Uh, but it's a major shift right now in Christianity. Uh, I would say probably we haven't seen, you know, something as big as this and maybe since the stapling of the thesis on the on the door by uh, Martin Luther. OK, the generation raised in post 9-11 America. What that looks like, what growing up during the Patriot Acts, what does that even mean? No knock seizures. We can come in and we don't have to have a warrant. If we deem this organization or this podcast as a threat to American society, we can detain you without notice. You won't get a call for your lawyer. Okay. A generation raised on technology has normality and identity. A generation raised on efficiency, calculability, control, and effectiveness as a social normality and way of doing life. This is a generation raised on likes and follows. Okay. This is a generation that, that knows how to work social media. Okay? A generation raised to organize and to critically think. When you think about uh, Black Lives Matter and how I grew and how uh, the whole issues with around Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, that was all on social media. It still is on social media. And it continues to be on social media. Whether you like it or not, it is there. And lastly, this was a generation raised to critique organized religion. Um, when you start and begin to think about some of these shifts, when you start to think about some of these things that this generation was raised on, um, I'm not as quick to jump on the bandwagon to say that this generation is losing its faith. Are there some challenges? Absolutely. And we need to get into those challenges. That's why you need to stick around for part two of this. Are there some areas that we all need to engage with and that we all need to, to look at? Absolutely. Whether that can be done, I don't know. We are at an apex as a, as a human species and trying to figure out our earth and trying to figure out our place in the in the universe. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure that uh, race is always taken into consideration when those things are looked at. I believe at the end of the day, the human species will look to take care of the human species, not individuals, but the human species as a whole. And as somebody who has been left behind continually in society, historically, politically, educationally, there's not much hope for that continuing on. So where does that leave us? Well, I don't think we got to get our undies in a bunch about these young people losing their souls. I think they're asking the right questions. I think they're asking the things that most of us have been thinking for a long time, but either been too afraid to ask, not wanted to ask, or just remain silent for fear of our jobs and not lo and losing them. So we got some things to contend with y'all. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The kids are all right. Sort of maybe, I don't know, but tune in to part two of this. And I want y'all to hear the voice of the young people and what they had to say specifically about how they relate to race and faith 
and all that good stuff. For more information on this and topics of youth and millennials, go on over to whitehodgepodcast.com. I will place some PowerPoints there, some links there, some show notes there, all there in the links. If you're interested in profane faith, we're on every medium, wherever you find your podcasts. Please subscribe and like and rate us on iTunes and on Spotify. This has been Dan White Hodge taking us on a little exploration and looking at current young and youth generations. What y'all say? What do you think? How should we engage? Holler back at your boy. Until next time, peace. Mm-hmm. <laughs>